Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. Third time's a charm. <laughs> I have to do it a fourth time unless we need to explain no, the no, three times. No, we're, we're sticking with this one. We had okay. three bad takes. <laughs> now we're sticking to the third one. Which for all for everyone listening is like they can't say hi Vanessa hi Adam yes <laughs> correctly it's challenging <laughs> we welcome to uncertain things uh, today we have our dear friend Ken Goshen mm-hmm. friend of the pod friend of the apartment friend of the pod Ken friend Goshen. of the apartment friend of our hearts he mm-hmm. is an artist a classical classically trained artist I think would that be a fair description. Yeah, I think that's how he describes himself, yes. A, he His painting, his art will probably be the thumbnail of this podcast, so that will give you an indication of his talent. And and you should definitely just look it up to, to get a sense of the... We, we mentioned it in the podcast, but Ken really is extraordinarily ta- talented. It's not like we're just talking out of our asses here. So if, you, if you're curious and want to see, see us confirmed, then just go check out his work to, to see what we're talking about. We thought we'd stick, stick to this uh, route that we uh, started on with our conversation last week with Adam Neely because, A, we, we needed a break before going back into the the horror show of of existing these days and in mm-hmm. fact next week if all the cogs in the machine turn correctly we should have the the renowned controversial maybe psychology professor paul bloom with us mm-hmm. to talk about the <laughs> the nature of evil that's it's it's going to be it's going to get dark but true to form our conversation with ken focused on not the not the good things in art, but what <laughs> basically mm. everything that's broken about the art industry. So it's uh, we focus right. on a different type of corruption, or we might call it the intellectual corruption of the art world, as as Ken sees it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is pretty. I mean, the fact that Ken is a, a person doing classical art in an age where that isn't necessarily as valued as it once was is kind of an odd. Uh, anachronistic thing and so we talk about that and we talk about why he feels so strongly that the traditions that are being rejected by the art world and industry right now have an incredible amount of value and he he actually posits that are are much more in in demand than we might have previously recognized because of things like social media and instagram making them more accessible to people like you and me and who get to vote with their with their thumbs on the kinds of art artwork that they like and like to see so it was pretty it was an interesting conversation we got into a lot of uh, nitty-gritty stuff i it's, it made me also think right now hearing you say that it's funny that we have we have uh, two good friends who are artists uh ken and ron and maybe one day we'll we'll talk to ron as well and they're both in this classical space and right. there's something very um I don't know if I don't want to call it nostalgic, but there's a tendency to to look backwards to draw on mastery and artistry of of thinkers, writers, and in the case of Ken, artists who came before us, it, out of a sense that some of that commitment to to the tradition has been lost, mm-hmm. and that in losing it, we we're we have a vacancy that is not quite satisfactorily being filled by current conversations or current strands of of work and and in fact could could looking back to those old masters to those old techniques to those old thoughts and philosophies actually help us move forward at a time that where where currently the the contemporary art world maybe maybe not fulfilling the needs of what we what we need out of art at a time like this right um which one one must wander. 
we won't answer all those questions, but we will try to deal with some. And you can follow Ken on at Ken Goshen on all the media, especially Instagram. That's his uh, that's his realm. Yeah, and he's also an art educator as well. And he talks a lot about how he approaches art education. So that, that if you are someone interested in learning how to paint like these old masters did, then that's another reason why you should follow Ken. Follow Ken. It's not just for the art itself, actually. So onward with our adventure to alleviate the abyss of, of loneliness and despair of our current <laughs> predicament to Ken Goshen. And art. Hi, Ken Goshen. Hi, Adam. Hi, Vanessa. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's been it's been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing something together for, I guess, <laughs> since 11th grade, I suppose. But uh, no, not 11th grade. So it's age 11 since like, what was it? Eighth grade? No, so, age 11 is younger than that. At least in the US. Uh, 11, so 12. Sixth grade even, maybe. Seventh. But now we finally have the excuse. Ken Goshen, to anybody who doesn't know, is an artist and a cl- of the classical variety, or the, or you might correct my vernacular in this if it's not exactly called classical, but the paintings that look like things and people <laughs> rather than abstract shapes or, or poorly thought out ideas. Yeah, I take no, I take no offense to the classical label. I think that that serves. You're of that wonderful, quickly diminishing school. And yet you are able to develop a pretty impressive audience online as an alternative to the sad, desolate reality of actually being a classical painter in, in the 21st century. Hmm. I think you, you touch on something that you make it sound as if it's a contradiction, but it's actually very, very natural. What's happening today in the art world is, as you may or may not have noticed, the gallery world eh, kind of left common folk behind. If you just venture into the majority of the galleries that you could find today, whether it's in Chelsea or in London or in Paris, the majority of the stuff that you're going to find are going to evoke confusion, right? <laughs> you're going to look at it and ask yourself, what, what am I doing here? Why are we looking at this? Why is this costing so much? I have no idea what I'm looking at. And that left a gap wide open that has been filled by uh, tr- more traditional realistic painters on social media. And I think there's a big revolution happening that I like to think of as the democratization of the art market. Because for the first time, people who don't necessarily have the funds to influence what goes into the gallery, because up until that point, right, it's people who can buy art are the ones who dictated the taste and, and where the gallery world was going. But, but right now, people can just vote with their feet, you could say, by whom they choose with to follow. With their thumbs. Exactly, with their thumbs, with their likes, with their shares. And if you look at the most, you could say, influential painters on social media, it's actually fairly common to see that, you know, they're figurative, they're realistic, and it's it's some kind of, of illusion that has taken hold of the art world throughout the 20th century that, you know, we want art that confuses us and, and, and doesn't make sense to the vast majority of people. You know, that that illusion is starting to fade away with uh, with the emergence of social media and the fact that people can choose to customize their feed, choose what they want to look at and not have to defer to the opinion of experts on that front and just say, this is what I want on my feed. This is what I'm going to follow. 
Well, I will say that I, I will push back on the idea that it's an illusion because I don't think that the people who propelled art into the, the what you call the more confusing, and we'll get deeper into those definitions a little later, but I don't think that the people who, who were pushing that trend thought that they were advancing necessarily a democratized market or a market that is going to be in the service of popular opinion. I think, if anything, they thought that they are presenting the cutting edge of what art can be and how communication through our art should be. So, if anything, what you're doing is more of a regression to a place where we're also respecting mass culture, mass opinion in the art world. I'm not sure about that because I wouldn't call it a regression since back in the day you might call it when figurative and realistic uh, painters were, were the dominant fashion in the art world. I don't think there was a lot of regard for the common folks idea of art. It was just that was just a situation that you know the elites were interested in in realistic painting back in the day before there was photography they wanted things to look like them and look like their sons and that is what they were interested in in seeing what happened uh with the rise of social media is that really for the first time the opinions of people who can't afford art begins to matter and this, this is not a regression this is something new it's a little ironic that it's that you're calling it democratization because when i think about the amount of effort and, and training that it takes for the artist to create the kind of art that you are putting up in front of the masses and the masses are responding to it, sure. But it just feels like there's this, there's this irony in the amount of effort and time and uh, training that needs to go into it, mastery that has to go into it versus what you might see it, with a, of kind of more contemporary art that does not, that training and mastery doesn't necessarily feel evident at all. And so I, I just feel like there's this odd disconnect between what's happening on the artist side and the viewer side. It's the democratization of the market, not of the art. Mm -hmm. The art is, if anything, that kind of art becomes more of a skill that you need to work for rather than something that is merely in the conceptual level, but the where the technical abilities count for less. Mm. But I but I, I I think I'm dragging our conversation already like two steps ahead. I wanna I wanna But I love I, it. Uh, but I love it. Can I just can I just respond to Vanessa? Yeah. Fine, fine. Respond to Vanessa. <laughs> uh, so, but I will I will say for the people who don't know Ken and are just uh, tuning in and are already confused why we're like uh, at at one hundred uh, miles per per hour. Um Ken is not just a fantastic influencer who's been able to master the algorithm, the, the algorithm god, as referred to in our Adam Neely podcast, but he's also a phenomenal artist. He's, his paintings, which if you're going to either follow him on Instagram um, at Ken Goshen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or even check out some of the clips that we're, we'll be releasing, you'll be able to see just how masterful he is in 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 capturing this um oh, oh, sadly antiquated style what vanessa is referring to is acquiring a skill that requires hours and hours days and days months and months of of practice to to even come close yeah. to creating art still requires something you know some some actual craft hmm. so i first of all thank you for that that's i i i I'm embarrassed because <laughs> to, the, to those of you who don't who don't know, Adam and I are, are close friends for over 20 years, and so we don't often just kind of lavish compliments <laughs> of this nature on, on each other. So I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a little taken aback, but it's okay, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> Quite the contrary. And, I, I, <laughs> I want I want to respond to what Vanessa said, and and say that when I when I say democratization of art, I don't I I mean the democratization of what art can be. In the gallery world, we would we would very frequently encounter this kind of approach towards classical art, like man, that's passe. We're tired of it, right? But what does we and tired mean? when hundreds of thousands of people are, are, you know, it's in evidence, you know, it, it, it's very clear that they are not tired of it at all. So wait, you're referring to a time when, when basically a, a prime motivator in the art world would be critics gathering around a painting and saying, we've seen this a million times before. There's no, no point in keeping praise in it because it's basically just a, a, you know, a reiteration of, of, a, of a technique that has been honed to, to, to mastery. And yeah, good, great. You can paint a, a really realistic portrait of someone. Like we've seen it. We know that you can control light. We know that we control perspective. We don't care, right? It's deeper. It's deeper. Uh, the question goes towards what is art meant to do? What is art meant to do when it's being produced? What's the goal? Uh, and very, you know, commonly today when you're, I'm going to call it gallery world or white cube world, uh, but you understand what I mean by main, mainstream art world, right? The art is almost always thought of as a communication channel that's supposed to be in service of some kind of higher message. And, and the art is being judged almost not on its merits, but on how well it's communicating that message. So for example, if you have some, something political in mind and you want to express it through an artwork, then at the end of the day, what we're going to be judging is, does the message strike home? Now, for me, this would be like the difference between painting a portrait of someone and painting a caricature of someone. When you paint a caricature of someone, we get it. Yes, that's the person. We understand. It has all the recognizable features of that person, but it doesn't have what a portrait has, which, you know, these are qualities that are important to, to classicists and to traditionalists. Things like, you know, beauty, right? You know, when, when a painting is beautiful, to me, it means a lot. It's very important. And and to in in mainstream art world that is almost like a rude world like what what are you what are you even thinking about what does it mean what who cares if it's beautiful it doesn't even matter you know so for me uh the art has to serve some kind of spiritual purpose that goes beyond uh the mere message that's behind it can you choose another word other than spiritual because spiritual gives me 12 shades of cringe yes um I c- you could think about it as, if we don't want to call it spiritual, we can say cultural, but if we want to elaborate on what I mean by that, I think there is some kind of biological necessity, some kind of biological attraction that we have as animals to be surrounded by things that make us happy visually, which later we call that beauty. Like you walk into your house, you you organize things, you have like a visually pleasing, yeah, visually pleasing, visually appealing. And art used to be at the top of this pyramid, like at the at the bottom, it's like, let's make sure my room's not dirty. <laughs> After that, let's make sure my house looks nice. You know, all these things that we do in order to surround ourselves with things that visually please us. And art used to be at the top. You know, once you really want to, you want to live alongside beauty, you're going to buy a painting and put it on your wall so that it can be there and make you happy. Right now, you know, mainstream art world doesn't even think that way. If I put something on a wall, it's going to just be almost exclusively because 
it's 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 a symbol of status. I want to showcase the fact that I have a Basquiat on my wall. I don't even think Basquiat would dispute this claim that his art is not geared towards beauty. He would fully, cons- I think he would concede. He would say, this is not meant to be beautiful. It's meant to evoke another kind of emotion. So there is a responsibility that is being you know, the, the ball's being dropped and who's going to pick it up? Do you know what I mean? Is that part, is that the result of... The- Wait, can I go back a little bit? Oh, now you want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit to what he just said, though, about this idea so of messaging. I, I, what, remember this point? The behind the scenes of this podcast is amazing. You do a lot of editing. <laughs> uh, 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 um, we do, although, to be fair, we, I don't think we as openly argue with each other when it comes to <laughs> when we have like David French on. I thought I was privy to something special. <laughs> and here's uh, the question of whether we're going to keep this or not is, is will be decided in the, the headaches of midnight <laughs> while I edit the episode. The, my question, the more immediate question, I think it's more immediate is how much, what you just described the, 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 uh, the fact that value, sorry, that beauty became devalued in the art world. Is that the result of mass production? The fact that you can just reproduce a lot of, th- like you can have, basically your own uh monet in your in your room if you if you so so please and and th- then the beautiful art becomes hotel art hmm uh i think i think that's uh it's a pretty problematic and and and, and reductionist view of what beauty is because now i'm a very problematic and reductionist person and that's 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 okay but <laughs> i think i think you i think you wouldn't you wouldn't be opposed to to the claim that this this almost goes to that aged conversation of of the the line between beauty and kitsch right because i think when you're looking at hotel art i would i would strongly hesitate to call that beauty i would call it the height of kitsch and i think it's a it's a worthwhile conversation to have but i i, I don't think that's that's where it started we can we can trace the origins of um basically the struggle against beauty uh, to, I would say, romanticism was probably where it started. And you could, you could start to see hints of it already in people that today we, we, we even call them the old masters, like the newest of the old masters. You start to see it with Goya. You start to see it with Delacroix. You start to see it uh, as a result of... Uh, of um, of philosophical frameworks that these that these artists were were thinking about because this whole idea of beauty, uh, well, you oh my god, this is so up your alley. You're gonna <laughs> love it. We could actually trace it back, uh, French Revolution, Rousseau versus uh, Montesquieu, and all that kind of stuff. So if you're going if you're going down the rationalist route and taking it all the way back, you you get to Plato and you know the idealized form beauty as as something that is divine that we should strive for that 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 paintings should try to kind of touch on and delacroix on the other hand saying no actually we shouldn't be looking for something that is perfectable and is like that is perfect and is kind of out there but rather let's look inward at all the imperfections that the human spirit offers and put them on the pedestal instead of hiding them. that's interesting so the connection there is if you see Montesquieu as as kind of the the, the aesthetic conclusion of, of of Plato, which is is, is interesting, the, the idea of rationalize like rationally achievable perfection that that through kind of calculation through um, maybe Burke is a better maybe Bur- Burke. Burke 
Edmund right, Burke, right. probably better. Because his, his thesis on, on the aesthetic or on the beauty. Mm-hmm, on the sublime. On the sublime, exactly. Interesting. And, and in contrast to that, you have the more, like, like prime, not primordial, but, but something that goes to the, to the primal nature of humanity. And this is the, the, the savage aspect of mm-hmm. humanity, which is, which is not that... But it's also a very specific definition of beauty, the, 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 the pl- platonic perfect idealized version of beauty because you could still find in um in rousseau belief in aesthetic and and it's just it's the aesthetic of of the the impulse of the of the uh, impressionism is is i guess the the child of that idea yes exactly and uh and that's what uh, this is a very very gradual shift and you're touching on it brilliantly and i think it's exactly that it's it's a it's a redefinition of aesthetic that's why i'm tying this to 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 philosophy because they're saying okay we're no longer interested in the beauty as the greeks thought of the beauty like the rational harmony yes yes we're thinking about beauty is oh my god how beautiful is it to record a brushstroke in pain so that we can feel you know the calligraphy and the movement of the hand and the bodily aspect of it and so when you're looking at it in Degas it's still charming because Degas is close enough to the other tradition that we can kind of see a beautiful merge between the two you can see it in Degas you can see it in Sargent you can see it in in in, in a lot of those transitional figures but the the logical end game of that is is Pollock right mm. it's just it's only like the hand and and we let go of everything that that has been there before that that has anything to do with with a more uh, how would we call it greek style of beauty i don't know how to best define it i feel like i've missed a step though which is i, I kind of wanted to ask a clarifying question when you were talking about um goya and delacroix like what what is it that you actually see on on the canvas that then conveys that there is a philosophical philosophical or aesthetic switch occurring because that was kind of like I've I kind of missed that in this in the exchange that you guys just had mm-hmm. and I feel like if I if I have that knowledge then I'll be able to understand this continuum a little bit better. I'll try my best to to kind of piece this together uh, without showing images. This is this is right. this, this is, is the uh, challenge. This of the is where, where language is going to feel a little bit uh, restricting, but I'll, I'll do my very best. in in the In the work of of the people, let's just call them the rationalists, okay? Just to make it easier on me. But uh, if you're an art buff, then I'm talking neoclassicism is the last representation of of these people whom I deem as believers in beauty what they were trying to do when they were putting the brushes on the page is they had this goal of, I'm going to do something that's going to have a timeless feel to it. And in order to have a timeless feel, I need to take myself out of the craft. So you see almost no brush strokes Mm. at all. Everything is super polished. It's almost theatrical when you look at it. And uh, in in its worst incarnations, it feels almost contrived because it feels very designed. This is how this triangle is going to look. Here we will have three figures. Here we will have one figure, but it's right. going to be larger. So everything is very symmetrical. All those all those elements are are designed in, with with meticulous and, and and obsessive regard for how the frame is going to function as a design. The Italians called it disegno, which doesn't just mean design. It it has a deeper meaning, like design as a as a as a higher goal that everything else is kind of laid on top of. And contrast that with the people, you know, the romanticists or the people who believe in in the individualization of of beauty, beauty not being something out there that we can strive for, but rather something that is inside of us and that we need to allow to exist on the surface. They were much more focused on 
well, let's accept the mistakes as part of the process. Let's let the brushstrokes um, be visible instead of showing them. Let's uh, incorporate the moments where things are actually like all those mistakes can and should be there as part of the final product. So when you look at when you look at Goya, he really brings it very to 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 a pretty um, how would you call it um, radical radical conclusion because these things that when you paint them uh you get scared <laughs> you know it doesn't have this feeling of beauty that is usually uh supposed to evoke a serenity or a feeling of harmony or a feeling of relaxation what specific goya are you imagining i'm, I'm imagining the late goyas when he was already deaf and he was uh depicting the horrors of the napoleonic conquests right, right. of spain yeah, thank you for that. Definitely, definitely talking about that because early Goya, he's he's a devotee of Velasquez, and it yeah. it, it would be di- difficult for people who are not art buffs to really look at early Goyas and see what I'm what I'm what I'm going for. But for for the keen eye, the hints were already there uh, that he is more influenced by by that way of thinking, and and his paintings, you know, they they scare the the living you know out of so, you yeah it's his not, dark his dark period <laughs> very dark very very dark uh what's the name of the, uh, the the guy eating the his his son I saturno the, is it saturno Sa- yeah it is saturno yeah saturn eating his son Cronus yeah, in greek and actually <laughs> this there's a beautiful opportunity here to look at how the same subject was depicted by goya and how it was depicted by Rubens, right? Because it's the same. It's the same horrific story of somebody eating their son. Yet with Rubens, it's all you know, detached and galactic, and they have halos, and they're mm. they're gods, and there's light, and there's stars, and you're like, oh, you know what? After having stared at it for like five minutes, I notice he seems to be eating his son. You know, it's <laughs> like that. That message is not the first thing that you see, but with Goya, you can't ignore the first thing you notice is like blood and and meat, and, and even 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 the way that um Saturn is 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 like contorted. He's like he's hunched. There's something so uncomfortable about and. Def- formed and corrupted about the way that he's standing and it's and you know it's the father of the gods usually depicted as the source of of existence the source of divinity and he is here he is so decrepit and 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 twisted but also let's not forget that for goya this is a political reflection on how the napoleonic revolution betrayed the ideals of the enlightenment this is the death of french liberalism in his mind yes but it's not a state eating its children yes of course but we need to understand what it means to protest against uh, a political reality through visual means uh it doesn't i mean today this this sounds totally natural because we've we've grown up in a world highly influenced by romanticism uh to us it's like okay it's something scary the napoleonic conquests are scary they killed a lot of people so let's make a scary painting but this <laughs> wasn't wasn't always the case you know when you look at how how manet uh painted the exact same event that goya painted uh, was it the third of my may or the fourth of may um yeah, yeah I, the, the massacre embarrassed myself yeah the mass the massacre there i forget the date but uh both of them painted the exact same event and goya's is dark and scary and there's like a feeling of of martyrdom in there and and on and the soldiers look like monsters uh, like shadows from from fantasia or something like that and and manet is is very like poker face about it like (laughs) here's the people and they shot these other people 
and and it, it it just doesn't it doesn't get sensationalized you know these these older ideas of of beauty is all about like detachment and stoicism and 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 let it let it not be the case that i i should <laughs> sound as if i'm advocating for one over the other like full stop not at all like i'm very thankful for the advancements that the romanticists have made and i can actually trace back you know more primal approaches to paint that i could say were were philosophically epitomized in, in romanticism but you can see it if I, if we if we trace it even backwards you know we go from delacroix and 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 look back we can even see those influences in rembrandt we can see them in titian we can see them in tintoretto we can see them with all the Venetians as opposed to the, to the Renaissance of Florence, right? The Renaissance of Florence was very like detached, smooth, almost no brushwork, disegno above all. And already in the work of Titian, Tintoretto and Veronese, you could see a lot more freedom, a lot more brushwork, a lot more room for self-expression. It's just, you know, when you take anything to, to its absolute extreme, there is danger there, mm-hmm. right? And, there's, there, there, and, and I think on the side of the rationalists, there never was a time when they, when they, as a movement, took it to a place that was difficult for me to enjoy, like going too far towards the point of taking themselves out of the piece because I feel like inherently that's very difficult. It, as, much, as much as Eng is going to try to erase every brushstroke available on his painting, I could spot an Eng out like <laughs> successfully out of 10 other of his contemporaries hundred percent with a hundred percent succession. You can never really take the artist out of the piece. So I feel mm-hmm. like that goal is more um, respectable for, to me because you know you you can uh, you almost can't take it too far in my view. I. I have had a small asterisk, and I think this is going to be a segue to go back to Vanessa's questions from like 17 hours ago. <laughs> the Manet, the, 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 the 3rd of May, the, his, of May. His, his reversion of it, it's, it's, it, was, it was also not, not as if that was kind of a continuation of, of, of existing style. It was also part of the, I think, like broadly speaking, romantic revolution. I think, <laughs> I think uh, uh, Jacques Berzun had a, had a piece where he's like capturing like like 80 different definitions of romanticism so it's like we need to be very careful just like throwing uh, around that term like a lot of people for throughout i think 400 years have been using romantic to mean very like vastly different things but definitely manet was part of a revolution his depiction of that massacre or that scene of execution as banal was itself rebellious right it was subversive extremely radical extremely radical yeah no absolutely that 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 is even it's even more um how would you say contemporary it's even more contemporary it has a documentary photography right, feel right. to it like 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 banality of evil you know photos from mm. photos from the concentration camps and and you just see like oh just you know nazi soldiers yeah, so, so, about right, right, a, so, a soldier standing next to a pile of corpses exactly just casually so of course manet was touching was touching on something that is even more contemporary than than Goya's depiction and makes more sense, obviously more contemporary because he is more contemporary. Uh, I don't know if you could say more contemporary, closer to contemporary times. So I wanted just to use that as an excuse to jump back to the question about message that you had. 
Well, well, hold on though. <laughs> oh, there's so much. Remember the days when we thought, what? We're going to have a full conversation about art. What are we going to do? <laughs> I, know, I, never, I, I never said that. You, you were. I was. <laughs> okay, I, maybe. And I, I should say that this is the, the benefit and the, the burden of speaking to, to a friend with whom you already have a lot of shorthand and, right, and, right, and right. share conversations that there's so much I just want to talk to you about and, <laughs> and, and disagree with you publicly on. <laughs> Let's do it. But, okay. Okay, so before I get back to the question that I, I have had in the back of my mind since you kind of established this kind of uh, divergence in the art world and what's happening now versus what was happening then, before I, get, before I go back there. So you pinpointed that Goya was a bit of a turning point, which is like an early marker of how we started to turn. But at the same time, you're saying still a lot of un- awesome stuff in Goya, still a lot to learn. Is there another point where you see a turning point, like kind of past the point of no return, where you're like, it is no longer awesome? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Duchamp? Yeah. Uh, No, I actually have a lot of respect for Duchamp, despite the fact that he clearly shot the art world in the head. Um, I mean, I mean, the painting, a woman going down the escalator or something? Yeah, nude, nude, (laughs) nude going down the stairs. Yeah, nude going down the stairs. Amazing. Uh, It's amazing. It's also not very original. Uh, because it looks like Picasso could have painted it. it uh, mm. Come at me, people. You want to argue? That's not. That's not what makes <laughs> well, Duchamp. Because, well, they were contemporaries, though, right? It's not like uh, Duchamp was uh, a copycat. Well, he was a copycat, and it's okay. You I mean, know, I mean, uh, well, he, he was he, definitionally he a copycat. He, he, it was, yeah, right. Yeah, he was a copycat. He even, I think, he even agreed with with the categorization of that painting as cubist, which obviously mm. started with Picasso mm. and with Brock. But then uh, Duchamp's most most uh, radical advancements in, in quotations to the art world has been actually in the field of sculpture. But I want to, I want to make sure that I answer. Were the uh, quotations were on the, an, an art world or sculpture? Sculpture, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I want to answer Vanessa. I do think that something, something reached a, a boiling point uh, in abstract expressionism, American painting in the fifties. When you see painters like Rothko, and and Pollock, you know, getting to the point of literally, you know, just splattering paint on canvas. Now, I have to be very clear about this. I love Rothko. He's one of my favorite painters, and I really dislike Pollock. So this is not a value judgment when I say just splattering paint. Mm-hmm. But there is just paint, you know, as abstract as abstract can possibly get, uh, it was pushed to the limit and it got there very gradually, right? We, we were in neoclassicist France and then we had Delacroix and the Romanticists and then we had the Impressionists taking it a step further and then the Fubists and, and uh, the Expressionists and, and, and just, you know, it kept on pushing and pushing and pushing in the direction of more self-expression, less, less, uh, less depiction, more self-expression, less depiction, more materiality, less depiction until the depiction just eventually, you know, it's not, it's not like an exponential graph that never reaches a point. It reached a point in the fifties. It's like, okay, there's maximum self-expression, maximum materiality and zero figuration or depiction. Now what? Mm-hmm. Now what? Well, and, clearly and I, more materiality and no, it's not so clear. It's not so clear because then came some geniuses like Andy Warhol that said, mm. okay, no more about this expression thing. It doesn't even matter who makes the work. I'm going to make none of my work. I'm <laughs> going to let other people make my work. You know, I, that, so that to me was a turning point 
where things could have could have oh. gone in positive oh, directions. Oh, 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 you're 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 tickling the Koons area. Your Koons is showing. It's exact. It's exactly true. It's exactly true because Andy Warhol is a predecessor of Jeff Koons, and of course, better than him in every respect, uh, in my opinion. And, oh, and so, well, harsh you know, words. Truth, Truth bomb. Uh, and I, think, so, I, think, I think we might get canceled for this. That's, that's okay. I'll, uh, that, You'll die on that hill. At least, at, at, at least you know, I, I stand by what I'm claiming here. Okay, and, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop you there just because this is a, such an interesting point and we're, we're really torturing. Well, I assume people who don't care about the art world have like tuned out at the, <laughs> at the title. We're getting into contemporary world and the kind of the malaise of the current art world. So I just, I just want you to, to dig a little deeper into the consanguineous relationship between um, uh, 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 Kuntz and Warhol, but also the difference. Mm. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit tricky, but first I'm, I think I'm going to, to say a little bit more about what... Warhol was 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 actually trying to do so so in terms of in terms of of how it it differs very radically from what happens in the in the abstract expressionist movement in the abstract expressionist movement somebody like Pollock could splatter paint on on the canvas and it, it could be you know meritorious and, and valuable because every splatter of paint records his individual movement the movement of his hand as recorded by by the splatters of the paint on the canvas uh, in the most poetic sense I can describe it as like somebody uh, some dancer dipping their their feet in in ink and dancing across the stage and the more vibrant and interesting that dance was the more the residue that remains on the stage is going to be appealing so This is, this is how art was, was or, or Pollock's art was conceptualized back then that, you know, it's very valuable because it's a record of a very beautiful movement that happened in private in his studio. And now all of us can enjoy this movement uh, as has been recorded in paint. And, you know, Warhol in, 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 in continuing the tradition of taking things that matter in art and remo <laughs> removing them basically says, well, at the end of the day, Everything is images. You know, we're looking at these images and these images mean something to us. And, and who cares how they were made, who made them? It doesn't really matter. We're all saturated with these images. And what really makes a difference if like I'm painting a painting or here you see advertisement for Coke or advertisement for soap. Both of these things are images. We look at them in kind of the same way. Let's, uh, let's stop pretending that art is this uh, something special. I want to join forces with the forces of commercialization and, and actually investigate the images that really matter in people's lives. Because how often do you actually find yourself staring at a painting? Not frequently. And how often do you find yourself staring at advertisements like all the time so the saturation of, of images in our life we're actually much more attuned to images that are not made by a specific person to the the uh, the, the author of whom is completely anonymous so he wanted to engage with images as people actually saw them in their time so he made things that did look a lot like advertisements and you could say that they were very smart commentary on these advertisements and, 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 and maybe even a little bit critical of them, but what made it all so genius, in, in my view, is the fact that he was always completely... Um, deadpan. How do you call it? Deadpan. He was, he was deadpan about it. He was dead, fully deadpan about it and said, uh, no, this is not a commentary of, this is a hamburger. Okay, but why, why is there a video of you just <laughs> eating a hamburger? 
because I love hamburgers. <laughs> it's just great because it, it you know, I could, uh, we could, we could go down this rabbit hole of whether or not Andy Warhol was really just a completely superficial person. I tend to disbelieve it because his, his work betrays, at least in my view, uh, the, the fact that he knew what he was up to. But basically it's like, oh, why, why, why are you making, you know, a million copies of Marilyn Monroe? Marilyn Monroe is a very important cultural figure. It's just, just very deadpan. <laughs> it is. It is what it is. So you know the fact that you're you're laughing about it is it it proves the merit of his work. It's it's this it's this uh, detachment that he was working very very hard to create that that makes the work successful. Um, I think that's exactly what Koons isn't doing. Koons is like admitting. He's admitting what he's up to. He's like, yeah, all this stuff doesn't matter. I don't care. This is a critique of this. This is a this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how commercialism is, is, uh, is doing this and that by... Okay, I need to be less emotional. So <laughs> everything... The, the reason why I value Warhol much more than I value Coons is because Warhol took it to... To the limit, you know, he actually lived in this deadpan, uh, performative way, kind of almost like Andy Kaufman of the art world. He lived, <laughs> he lived the joke, and and Jeff Koons is like he's or the tragedy, like, or the tragedy, right? He's behaving like a like a. But isn't like Jeff? An but even Jeff Koons, Jeff Koons is an investor, right? Jeff Koons is yeah. he is the. He, if anything, he, he is more than Andy Warhol in some sense. Andy Warhol is playing a part. Jeff Koons is the part. He is the, the marriage of commercialization and, and, and the art world. He right. so it's it, not even deadpan. Right. So I'm participating in his act, playing the role that I'm supposed to play, which is being the traditionalist who hates him. <laughs> but that's what he wants from me. <laughs> so I'm granting it. I bet Interesting. So in your in your evaluation of Warhol and Kuntz, I'm hearing a lot of their the their intent about their intentions about their uh, performances. I'm hearing not so much about the art itself. So when we get to the stage of of mm. art world, when you're evaluating them, you're not actually evaluating them on the merits of what they've created anymore. You're evaluating them on their their philosophy at this point. You're you're on to something very important. I'm doing both, and I should be clear that I'm doing both. Uh, so far, we've we've spoken about this philosophically, but I also uh, prefer Warhol's work aesthetically to Kuhn's work. I'll take Warhol's work any day of the week because Warhol did something fairly exceptional, I think, uh, in, 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 in being very wise about creating his work with mediums that's inherently, you know, speak to this uh, aesthetics of mass production. If you want to speak about mass production, making video art makes a lot of sense because there is no original. What is the original video? Where is it? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't speak, you know, it bypasses this thing. Oh, you know, I want to see the painting in person. You know, you could screen that video any gallery you want and it's, none of them are going to be that original. So actually in the way that he makes his work, uh, there is already the, the, the aesthetic premise of, of, uh, of mass production. Also, you know, all of his uh, visual stuff that, that hangs on wall, the majority of them are prints, you know, silk screens. And silk screens, again, they're mass produced. So there's something about the way that he makes his art that tips, tips the hat towards the, the aesthetic merits of mass production. Coons, 
does this with oil paintings. He hires like 200 painters to paint these oil paintings and he actually makes oil paintings uh, or tries to make oil paintings into mass production. And I think there is an aesthetic contradiction there. The paintings fail, in my view. They I mean, just don't Kun- look good. you can say that Kunz is doing the opposite, right? Like Kunz is taking a, a, a mass-produced product like a vacuum cleaner and turns it into a singular exhibit. Mm, there's actually a very... Well, yeah, but with that, I have less of an issue, right? For when he, when he, when he does that. That's I'm where like, he succeeds, you think? Yeah, that's okay. That's his better work. And actually, there is a really beautiful uh, vac. I, I almost suspect that, uh, that there's a homage to Warhol there as well in the vacuum clean, cleaner because there's a, there was a group show, I forget which gallery, uh, to which many famous artists uh, contributed um, pieces. And Warhol's contribution was a performance where he just went into the gallery before they hung up the work and vacuumed the room, <laughs> cleaned the room. People took photos of him cleaning the room and he's cute Adam. He, you could see that he's, he's just cleaning it very methodically, getting all the way to the edges of the room, cleans the room, and you could walk into a gallery that was cleaned by Andy Warhol. So with a vacuum cleaner. And I think that's, that's terrific. You see, I see you laughing because it's great. It's no, it's great. great. It's great. The vacuum cleaner, like the vacuum cleaner sells it because if he had actually dusted it, like we used a duster or something or a broom, <laughs> then you could say that it's, it's more manual labor. You can almost feel right. his sweat, but no, no, no. He's using a vacuum cleaner. It could have been anybody else who was doing it's, that. It's, it could have been an automated, it could have been a Roomba, but no, it's Andy Warhol. Exactly. I, I just, you know, I just love that stuff. If it were, if he were around today, he probably would have had like a hot pink Roomba right. around the gallery. I feel like that would have been the, the contemporary be the version. version. Um, I think this touches on the fact mm. that, you know, we're talking about these things and uh, so affectionately because I, I do enjoy them. Uh, but this, this touches on something that ha- has also happened to art, which is worth acknowledging that is, it's becoming more and more and more interdisciplinary. So right now I'm appreciating this art piece not on its aesthetic merits. I'm appreciating it like I'm appreciating stand-up comedy. I'm just thinking that's hilarious <laughs> and great. And I don't think stand-up comedy is any, <laughs> any lesser art form. So I appreciate the wit that, is, that goes behind you know, Warhol's pieces. And in some of Kuhn's more successful work, you could see that. But in the majority of his work, it's lacking. Uh, and so it fails on the it fails, in, at least for me, on, on, on the artistic, uh, artistic merits, and it, it fails on the interdisciplinary um, pass that I could have given it uh, when I want to appreciate it as a different kind of art form. Although, isn't he, for Kuntz, and I think this is the last thing we should say about Kuntz because <laughs> we've given him way too much uh, airtime. Air yeah. Isn't the performance the very fact that he that the artwork is produced by underpaid interns, by dozens and dozens of underpaid interns who, who he hires to do the most menial tasks of a very trivial artwork? Isn't that the performance? Um, I maybe, but is it a good performance? Like anything could be a performance, but does does that you know what does that make you feel? I mean, it makes me feel like chills. It makes me feel the the horror of of uh, to to borrow a phrase from our um, Marxist friends. It's late stage capitalism. This is precisely so. Here, there's there's something really annoying. There's like there's like uh there there's probably a name for this in German because what they're what they're doing is you know <laughs> Kuhn's is working very hard to make us hate him, and then when we hate him, they're saying, "Oh, you can't hate him. He's a great artist." Like, can't you acknowledge the the value of the performance? Yeah. Yes, I'm taking it at face value. I understand the performance. 
he wants me to hate him and I oblige. These things are <laughs> sickening. <laughs> no, but but yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering because like, when I when I think about that, when and when I see the product, it horrifies me just as much as as Goya's Saturn. And, and I'm not being oh, facetious. I'm not being facetious. No, because I think Goya's Saturn shows tells you something about the corruption and tells you about the the end of of humanity in some way when you look at it you kind of look at the abyss of humanity right mm-hmm. and when you look at Kunz you kind of look at a different form of the abyss of humanity and I'm, again I'm not being facetious I, I, I really do okay. feel that and you don't get that with Andy Warhol Andy Warhol has something again maybe you needed to be in the in the 60s maybe seeing those Marilyn Monroe's in real time would have seeded despair in the viewer but honestly when I when I look at a work of Kunz and when I think about Kunz I, it's, I, 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 I feel cold. I feel cold and dead and, and, but in a very dark, helpless way. So isn't that successful? I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this, but I think it is doing this intentionally. It is trying to make me feel cold. Like I, you can say that you get the same kind of, of horror when you look at, um, shitty advertisements and and when you look at um i'm trying to think of a really bad oh <laughs> there was that i think it was a pepsi ad of a, a, a rebellious girl i think she had like probably like uh, highlights in her hair and she was like walking towards like police officers in their riot gear and she offered up a can of pepsi and the the officer in his huge metallic hand that grabbed it and look the the rebels and the establishment can connect over pepsi it's like that was horrifying looking at that was looking at the abyss right but that was not the purpose that was they failed and going back to vanessa's point about intentionality they failed their goal like their goal was to get me to buy pepsi not to get me to gaze into the abyss whereas coons is doing it intentionally he's he knows what he's doing. Well, there's an enormous difference between commentating on it and participating in it and what Goya is doing. I don't recall Goya joining Napoleon and murdering people all throughout Spain. It's well, very, he, very different. Funny, funny, but, but he was a, 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 a propagandist in his earlier days, to be fair. Well, he was pro-enlightenment. He was he was pro the philosophical uh, right right you know the ideal the ideal I, I, I that Napoleon pretended. I wouldn't say that yes, he yes. was. I just think he was he was he was really pro liberal values. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 I think you know we might we might do a whole deep dive on 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 Goya's uh, on Goya's etchings and and I think that that would be very valuable. Um, but I I want to make sure that I that I nail what I'm what I'm thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Coons here before before I talk about Goya whom I love so much more. Um, no, me too. That, <laughs> that, that, that what, what you're saying the following if I if I'm not to straw man what you're saying you're saying i'm confronted with a visual phenomenon that illuminates for me the corruptions and depredations of 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 capitalist society and all that can can go wrong with it and i am in debt to coons for having provided this very profound realization for me but for me you know i it doesn't it doesn't feel any different you know it feels worse than for example i i, I experience this feeling if i go and i look at, at at like a rugged part of town and i see a lot of homeless people i'm confronted with oh my god you know there all these failures of capitalism are, are absolutely horrifying but had i heard that an artist purposefully 
took homes away from these people <laughs> and put them on the street <laughs> in order to illuminate my bourgeois <laughs> mind to this reality, I'd be like, imprison this guy, put him in jail. What are you talking about? I'm experiencing all these illuminations at the expense of everybody's life. So he, this guy is shooting the art world every morning uh, and I'm supposed to be yeah, satisfied? <laughs> like, I'm not. I don't often seed points, but you got this one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to finally come back to this question that I've had uh, rolling around in the back of my mind now for a while. Okay. So when you ascend, uh, first described where, we, where you feel like we're at in the art world, you s- said something along the lines of, all of everything that you see in the gallery has come down almost a hundred percent to message. How well are we communicating some certain message, be it political or ideological or whatever, and to the expense of at the expense of beauty? So I guess I have two quibbles with this formulation. I think first of all, I don't understand a damn thing of most of the things that I go and see in the gallery. And therefore there has been some sort of severe breakdown in communication. And the only way that I know that there is some sort of political or philosophical intent is when I read the little blurb and I'm like, okay, maybe I kind of like, who's the recipient of these messages you're saying. So that's quibble one. And, and not only that, but like, I think if that were the goal, it would be so much more straightforward and essentially propagandist uh, what I would be witnessing. And then quibble number two is I do think a lot of people do like some of this stuff when they put it on the wall in their, in their flat, like I, in their apartment. I think they do think there is some form of beauty that they are receiving from mm. some of this art. So I guess these are my, my two quibbles with mm. your formulation. And, I'd, and as, you resp- as, as you respond, I'm going to bring myself more wine. So either you can wait or you can start it's like it's, it's up to okay, you okay so so from these two quibbles first i need to concede and, and say you're, you're right these these both of these things I, I have not clarified uh and i think you're you're on to something that that is 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 correct and how i should probably phrase the word message better but i'll take the second quibble first because it's an easier one and it's going to make okay. me sound like more of an elitist snob uh, okay. So, because we're talking about matters of taste, and and as mm. we say in Hebrew, which I think is really stupid, but what it says is like you shouldn't argue over taste and flavor, uh, uh, flavor and, and and smell because it's like your own preference. I think that's super silly because what else is there to argue about? It's the best thing to argue about personal <laughs> taste, and in my opinion, you know, these people have a taste problem. Their taste is not cultivated. And what you're asserting is some sounds to my ears, something like, well, but a lot of people think McDonald's is delicious. Well, great. You know, that's fantastic. It's, uh, I, can't, I can't argue with the fact that they think it's delicious, but my claim is that if they spent long enough, you know, in the, in the company of whatever French cuisine experts, they would probably learn to appreciate real food and, and discontinue their, their McDonald's obsession. Uh, and I love mm-hmm. how McDonald's brings us back to Warhol and Coons, but we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> the only difference being, of course, that there are elite people telling them that this is actually the, the French cuisine that they should be. And that is, uh, that is a whole lot of corruption. If you ask me. Well, <laughs> I, and, and, and just to strong, sorry, to, to the opposite. Just to steal man them, I think they the, the way that they see it is a, a lot of the art that Vanessa and, and, and myself too would probably be a little bit repelled uh, by is 
they would say the the experts, the people who are part of the auctions that get these paintings sell, sold for tens and millions of dollars, would tell you that no, it is you who need to have your taste cultivated. The fact that you, of course right. everybody can love uh, figurative painting. It's, it doesn't take work to appreciate something that looks like the thing that it is painted. Like this is this is very simple beauty. This is beauty one hundred one. We are at a much more advanced stage of aesthetic, and you need to train your eye and your mind mm-hmm. to appreciate the contemporary art that's true and uh in my estimation i have i have done the requisite work having gone through parsons and did my degree in contemporary art in the finest university that the u.s has to offer i have studied the philosophical frameworks closely i graduated uh top of my year all throughout the program and now i'm making my own value judgments so it's it's, it's true and i and i did that as a courtesy to them because I thought, you know, this art is problematic, but perhaps I am ignorant. Perhaps I am lacking in education and I don't feel like it is my place to, to judge it before I have taken it very, very seriously, devoted time to it and studied it very rigorously uh, because I'm, I'm just like you, you know, I think, who am I? Who am I to judge this before mm-hmm. I learn it? Well, I've, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving it more. I've gave, I've given it four mm-hmm. years of my life. And if I can't judge it now, then something is terribly wrong with the way art is being taught in universities, which is also a full topic that we can discuss. <laughs> but I feel like I've earned, you know, the credentials to criticize it, uh, having gone through a very, very rigorous and serious study of it. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's for that. And this is what we call in Hebrew Pazam. Pazam. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so to your first quibble, which I think I, I, I'm taking it up second because it's the, it's the more interesting one. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, I think the word message is indeed inaccurate. And what's, what's more adequate to say here is that there is something, quote, behind the work, close quote, that is more significant than the work itself. So you're confronted with something that is both sometimes visually and uh, conceptually opaque, you you stand there mm-hmm. in confusion, and you're like, "What is this? Why mm-hmm. is this made?" You know, and you and because it's in the gallery, you you immediately assume that it's not a silly object. You know, it it it's it also has it already has an air of respectability and meaning around it just because of the context in which you're confronting this object, and you're like, "Okay, this." on its face looks like a silly object to me, but since it's at, you know, a very expensive gallery in, in Chelsea, it probably means a lot of stuff. Now I'm going to go and read that label to see mm-hmm. the story behind it, blah, 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 blah. But, but, but essentially this object acts as like a portal to a story that exists independently of the piece, you know, art as like uh, um, a window that you can look beyond. Nobody cares about the window. It's what you see through the window, right? So that is, that is what bothers me about art. Like, I don't want to see, you know, what's through the art piece. I want to see the piece. Can the piece in itself provide me with meaning and satisfaction uh, without me having to just use it as a platform for learning about something different? And I don't think that these two have to be in contradiction. I do think there's sufficient evidence of very meaningful, narrative-driven, uh, politically radical 
pieces of art that are also beautiful. You know, Jacques-Louis David and his commentary on the French Revolution comes to mind immediately. Uh, but it doesn't even have to be that. It can, it can be much simpler or it could be much more complex. But I just don't like this idea that the, uh, enjoying the actual canvas and what's on top of it is secondary to what's behind the canvas conceptually. So one of the intellectual justifications for putting less focus on the, as you call it, the window than what's behind the window, um, if I, I hope I used the metaphor correctly, is the postmodernist critique, critique of language as a, a, a foggy tool to convey ideas and where the ideas are what really matters. So the gist of the argument is we are trying to talk about meaningful things. We are trying to talk about uh, uh, structural problems, cultural corruption, from racism to sexism to being held hostage by our economic system. Anything that we need to talk about that deserves discussion in our, in our socially apprehensive moment is, is being condensed through... Tools that don't fully communicate the problem and, in fact, are sometimes captured by the people who are causing the problem, right? So, a lot of the, mm-hmm. so the, the Foucauldian, the classic Foucault argument is language itself is always contextualized in, in a certain power structure. So, it is al- almost impossible to really criticize that power structure using the language of the moment. And mm-hmm. same with art. Art is... Right. The aesthetic of art could be argued as... Um, either distracting you from a very important message or potentially even obscuring that message because the the language of aesthetic, the aesthetic preferences are already part of the oppressive uh, uh, status quo. So you mm-hmm. can't really use that language in order to criticize the status quo. So that is, that is basically the part of the intellectual justification or intellectualizing of uh, a certain movement in art away from what you and I consider an, an, an aesthetic, especially if some of the criticism is to precisely attack the historic moment that created the, the aesthetics that we like, the, the 18th, 19th century art, maybe even earlier than that. Basically, the European tradition that traces itself back to the Renaissance through the Enlightenment. These have wrought a lot of the ideas that some of the contemporary artists are trying to criticize. So using the tools created by that period is already surrendering to that period in a way. I don't think so. I, th- I think that would have been brilliant checkmate. That would have been brilliant checkmate because uh, their critique, their critique of the, of, of the whole framework is extraordinarily weak since they they already profess to be um how to explain it they're skeptical of the whole thing called art and what art, what can art do art is a weak language art can't can't be used in order to talk about these in the western context art in the western context is is too weak in order to to talk about art, all these you know lofty ideas and 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 um and concerns that these people have but essentially what they end up doing is is they haven't proven that they came up with a better language to use in order to speak about these ideas it's like okay if this language is weak then let's develop a language that's stronger in order to communicate these ideas and and i don't think that that is done 
You know, there's there's a rejection of the language out of a political uh, or or sociological concern and say, okay, I'm not going to use this kind of painting because I don't like where it came from and what it represents. Okay, great. But that's not an argument for saying this other kind of thing that I'm doing is filling that gap. That's not proven. It's not proven at all. And if we were to go to um, bedrock uh, postmodernist concerns, a lot of postmodernist concerns have to do with, you know, elites co-opting fields and, and alienating them from the public. There's nothing that does that more than the current state of the art world. There's nothing more alienating to everyday people than walking into the gallery and feeling inadequate and feeling mm. like they, are, they can't understand anything that's going on there. That's like the epitome of the things that postmodernists are supposed to critique. Like if you want to serve the common person, have a little bit of modesty and, and, and try to actually investigate what is it that people are expecting from art. And this goes full circle to the social media discussion take a look at who they're following no and to, and to be fair I, I'm 100% on your side on, uh, on this and in fact I would even say that I think that if Foucault would have been like commenting on, on today's art world he would probably uh, snicker at, at anybody who, who thinks that they have escaped uh, uh, the, the boundaries of of, of status quo preserving language and say like no no you're just doing the same thing and i think and foucault taken seriously saying like you can't really escape it it's like it's not a, you'll just re- replace one elite with another right and i think there is there is you know there is something positive to be said about acts of rebellion uh against uh dominating structure and just, you know, maybe even if you're not doing it completely eloquently, but you're just saying, this is a dominating structure and we're going to rebel against it because there's something wrong with it. And, and I don't like how Ken is telling me that I need to come up with a new, better language in order to, to deconstruct it. No, I'm just going to say this thing is wrong. But it's completely pathetic to ignore the fact that this is now the hegemon. These guys have been in control for 70 years, for 70 years. So who are you rebelling against? Rebelling against, against the classicists right now is, is punching down. <laughs> I, I, do, I do wonder though, and, and, I, and I, on the surface, I completely agree with you because I have felt alienated so many times by walking into a gallery and, and, and feeling like I lacked the education, I lacked some sort of ability or emo- emotional capacity to understand or relate. That said... I can't imagine that there isn't some sort of artistic scenario that I could wander into where I would have some sort of fuller understanding through a different type of interaction with art. And I'm thinking of certain types of like uh, theatrical art experiences that I've had, for example, where there is some sort of narrative and the, and the lines are very blurred between is this art, is this theater, and kind of getting to this like in, more interdisciplinary type of art that you were referring to early. Mm-hmm. And maybe there is a potential there for something more uh, kind of disruptive of traditional art but that can still impact and reach you as as a viewer because it can incorporate things that you can relate to like a little Kuntz. bit more. Stop I don't know. I mean I don't know. <laughs> I don't uh, I've never experienced a Kuntz immersion. No but- no no I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you and 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 it's very important to say that that I am fully on board with these contemporary artistic practices. Like I'm a fan of Rothko. I'm a fan of Warhol. When done right, 
these things are very powerful. And I think something that has to be learned from that is me as a, you know, a practitioner of classical art am incredibly accept, accepting and, and, and inclusive in my approach and thinking like, great, like all these, all these other, you know, ways of making art when done well can be extremely evocative and, and, and profound and, and have a lot, a lot to contribute to our culture. My concern is that this is not reciprocated. Mm-hmm. On the other side, you know, mm-hmm. on the other side, there, there, there is, there is a huge, you know, there's a lot of contempt. There's, there's a lot of, of disrespect and, uh, and there's, in my opinion, envy, in my opinion, mm-hmm. there's envy on the other side towards people who've actually taken the time and learned how to paint and think that's important. Cause I can say, you know, performance art is fantastic. Video art is fantastic. Even ready-made sculpture, Duchamp. It's fantastic. I love it. I go to the MoMA. I enjoy, but when <laughs> I just want to see it go the other way around, it doesn't mm-hmm. go the other way around. The real postmodern revolution is only going to happen when these people stop rebelling against something that's already dead and pick it up and accept the figurative tradition as also part of this, um, you know, cluttered, weird, messy um, artistic world that we currently live in. Do you experience this on a personal level where people like do, don't understand why you it is you do what you do or give you shit for it in a, in a way? Yeah, a lot of the time. I mean, it's but I don't blame them. Again, I I, I treat them with um No, no, what we're saying is we want the gossip. <laughs> no, I don't need you gossip. gossip. <laughs> oh, I, I, I want the gossip. Give, give, give us an example. When, give us an ex- encounter where you actually felt that you were stonewalled uh, or, or even just, you, you know, just like somebody shrugged and said like, okay, I don't, I don't get what you're doing this dead form of art. Why are you committed uh, yeah, to it? Happens, it? It happens a lot in, in art fairs, you mm. know, like to the people who don't know what an art fair is or how it looks like. It's almost like little cubicles, little booths in a huge hangar. And every booth is either, either a gallery or an artist. So these people can walk by my paintings uh, right in between two other booths of, of abstract art or, or contemporary art or whatever it is, kinds of art. So some of them would just walk by and like, oh, I, I don't get it. And, 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 and you know, continue walking. But I, I, don't, I don't really know how to produce spicy gossip from it because it doesn't <laughs> bother me. I mean, I don't live under the illusion that everybody needs to love what I were, what I, what I make. It's like, okay, if it's not for you, then, then it's not for you. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's these things that recur like, Oh, why do you paint things to look like a photograph? Like I could take a photograph on my phone. Maybe a good example would be my bread painting. So to those of you who don't know, I have, a slight obsession with bread. I've painted over 30 uh, paintings of challah bread, uh, which on their face look very realistic. Uh, could say photographic. I would be I, I would be reluctant to say it because I have a lot of issues with that, but uh, some people would think of them as photographs. Now, when people ask, hey, like, why should I look at your bread if I can just take a photograph of bread? My My answer is kind of like, if you just take a photo of bread, would that... Would that be interesting to look at? And usually the answer is is no. Like no, if you walked by that bread when it was just on the table, don't don't stop me at I'm going places. I know what you're up to. Uh, and so if you just walked by that bread, 
it, it was it was on your kitchen table or whatever you wouldn't even give it a second glance but the way that i compose my paintings clearly you stand here you're looking at this bread you're asking me questions about this bread and this is even before i start to tell you things about the technique that goes behind to you know painting this bread and the fact that it has texture and photographs can't capture everything that we do in texture and this goes into the realm of sculptures and the it's beyond the technical it's the fact that here you are standing in front of my painting of a bread for five minutes before you muster up the courage to walk up to me and ask me questions if this was just a photograph of a bread with with emphasis on the just probably wouldn't have done it so there is something there that is aesthetically meritorious such that you find it you find it um there is justification in you standing in front of it and contemplating well is that is that because it's a painting or just because it's in a gallery like wouldn't a print somebody took a painter uh, sorry somebody took a photograph of uh of a challah bread with, on their phone and printed it in like a like a wall size uh, 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 a print would that would that not have caused also people to pause and ask themselves what's going on here that's already a move you've changed you've it's not just the bread anymore you've changed the scale you've changed the space You've done art. You've done art. Now, where I'm talking about it is is actually more significant than it being in a gallery because I'm I'm talking about the environment of the art fair where people come in there and there's like 200 artists vying for people's attention. So if there are 20 people gathered at my booth and not in other booths, this is a question mark that 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 we should be mindful of. Like, okay, so we have all. The artists making their work trying to be as attractive as possible to the to these audiences and these people are choosing to stand in front of quote just close quote bread it's fascinating because I remember long before Instagram was just a a, a glint on the eye of, of Google it Google I, I don't know whoever Facebook Facebook, Facebook. I remember um, there a lot of the talk about in art schools which I obviously know vicariously through you is the question of how long are you able to make people linger at your at your booth or at your or, or looking at your painting and this economy of attention was already there in in galleries and this question of like how do I justify or I, how do I cause people to to not skip this particular work and and just actually take time to look stare think contemplate observe reach their conclusions and then move and I guess now Instagram literally takes that into account it really it literally calculates the milliseconds that you spend on each each painting and and and, and boosts your virality through that mm -hmm. so in a way instagram is the pinnacle of this metric which artistic circles and art schools have been propounding for ages there's some there's some truth in that but also there's a way to step back from it uh and see it as something that is that is that is more i guess you could say it common to other to other kinds of fields like for example if you are a restaurateur what are you what are you hoping to achieve you're hoping that people will choose your restaurant spend longer there as opposed to other restaurants you know if you if you whatever 
you have Uber against Lyft. Like, what are you vying for? You're vying for, okay, we want the people to pick our stuff as opposed to their stuff. No, but I think the distinction is that with a lot of products, for people could say that the the only currency that matters is you know actual currency is actually right, exactly if you if you're painting cells for 30 million dollars it is better than that painting that sold for 10 million even if people stared at the one that stole for 10 longer for the artist it might be different in, mm. in restaurants in 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 a lot of everything that is commodifiable you can just put a price tag on it and if people are paying more for your product than for others then you've won it doesn't matter if they actually spend mm. more time with you whereas oh, for the artist a, a, a there was i remember this old conversation of we actually we, before eyeballs was a was a metric that was uh, commonly discussed people were talking about how long are you actually looking at this painting whether or not it sells for 10 mm. 5 or million or 1 dollar you still wanted people to pay a, that attention and i think I'm, that's uh, great yeah, yeah so, yeah, so yeah, what yeah, i'm yeah. saying is that instagram i think trans is the first tool that actually translated that into like actual me and measurable metric. Mm, I think there's something so interesting there because uh, first of all, I, now I get what you mean and, and, and I think it's totally correct. And this actually goes to, to something that's fairly integral to, to succeeding on Instagram as an artist. And it's completely counterintuitive to what you would think would work on Instagram based on your knowledge of what do I do in the gallery? What do I do in, on my website? And, and let, me, let me kind of explain that. So for example, when you put a painting up on a wall, what you're thinking is, okay, my painting is going to be on a wall. There's going to be other paintings on other walls. How do I make sure that people look at the painting on my, like on, on, at my painting as opposed to the other painting? So you're basically almost in conflict with the space. The, mm. the space mm. is providing a way out. People always want to go to the next room, want to go to the next door. You know, you're in conflict with, with people's uh, mo mobility. You want them to not move. You want to stop them in their tracks uh, from, from navigating through the space. Uh, so you, you need to kind of create an immersive environment within your painting so that people want to travel inside of your painting by moving their eye as opposed to traveling around the room using their feet. Uh, on Instagram, if you thought that that is going to work, <laughs> it's completely wrong because uh, most artists, when they start off using Instagram or, or social media, what they think is, I'm going to paint the best painting and I'm going to put the best painting on Instagram and then things are going to work out. But that's just not the case. What, what the what that is lacking is actually an interaction with the space. What needs to happen in order for, for an art piece to be more successful on Instagram is actually to, to allow the frame to include the context in which the artwork is displayed. So for example, if you're going to take a photo of your painting, here are three options and I'm going to rank them uh, based on least successful on Instagram to most successful on Instagram. So least successful, just the painting looking great. Slightly more successful, painting looking great on an easel. Slightly more successful, painting, more, painting looking great on an easel with your hand holding the brush, working on the painting. Okay, now we're mm. talking. And then the latest level is all, all the stuff that I've mentioned. And in the background, you see the model. Then people are like, oh my God, I'm right there 
with him, hmm. feeling what it's like to be in his space. So basically the weakness of Instagram and why it demands uh, a change in how we're actually conceptualizing our, our images and putting our image out there is that it's lacking in this relationship of painting to space, painting to room and painting to room slash painting to context slash painting to space is actually so fundamentally important to our enjoyment of this visual object that you really have to include it. You're saying painting to room. It sounds more like painting to the creation or to the process. Painting to context, I would say, is the, is the best way to, to phrase it. Like this painting as an object doesn't mean anything. It, the, the meaning of the painting is given to it by the environment. And it's funny to think about it, but it's, it's even true in a gallery. Even if the wall around the painting is completely blank and there's nothing there, that's still context. This is like, no, no, but I'm saying, but now the framing is the creation process, which it's not mm-hmm. in the case of a gallery. Right. It doesn't have to be the creation process. It's something that I'm very passionate about because my Instagram is heavily geared towards education. And because my Instagram is very geared towards education, uh, I mm. like bringing people into the process. But it doesn't So can you give me an example of, of a different version of that, of like a, a other context, like a, another way that an artist that you know on Instagram is using yes. context as yes. a... Yes. So for example, you could, you could just... Let's say you have a sketchbook with a lot of great sketches. You could scan them each individually and make posts from those sketches. That's bad content on Instagram. However, if you take a video of yourself scrolling through the book, that's great because you understand, oh, that's the object. That's how the object looks like. That's how the object feels like. You want to fight against the inclination of these digital media to take your Ob- your object art and turn it into I digital see. cold image. Uh, Don't see. let it be digital mm-hmm. cold image, despite the fact, you know, it's very tempting to do so. That's right. what you do on right. your website. And that's what makes the art sure. looks more true. You know, the colors are more correct. Mm-hmm. Everything looks more mm-hmm. high resolution. But in fact, what people want from, from, from your images is to feel the object, to feel the thing, to feel something that is not this alienated robotic experience. Interesting. Yeah. So we just had uh, Adam Neely on on the last show, and he he was talking. We we got into this really interesting conversation about clickbait, right? And how <laughs> he was educating me on like how everything he does is clickbait for the audience of the musician. And so- Adam Neely, for for our listeners who haven't listened to that podcast or don't know him, he, he is a musician. He's in a, and a music educator, a music educator, and a, a YouTube influencer. Yeah. So for for. The art world. What what is the clickbait of the art world? And can you give us an example of how you've created content that is click clickable? Uh, so <laughs> because I work on Instagram, clicks are not my currency, right? So mm, people okay. don't need to click on my stuff. It's as Adam said, people need to stop swiping. People need to stop mm. swiping. So that's a totally different uh, plausible. Yeah, plausible, right? You need to you need to have an image that that has the feeling of, wait, what? And then people scroll back. Like you, it needs to be <laughs> so, like sufficiently uh, stimulating and, and, and eye-catching and to communicate a lot very, very quickly so that people either stop on it or if they scroll past, they scroll back thinking, did I just see what I just saw? And, and, and go back. So it's, it's definitely clickbait's not, <laughs> it's, it's not in my repertoire. And, okay, so and, how, how, do you, how do you create linger effects? It's exactly it's exactly as I said because when you're when you're providing context for your work, 
people are not just like, okay, that's a pretty painting, but like what's on mm. his easel? What kind of brush is he mm. using? And then they're trying to kind of decipher all the other elements that are happening in that image. Uh, or for example, if we're talking video, you know, you recently had a video that went very, very viral. Uh, and I commend you for it. Well done, Adam. Uh, and that, that video was brilliant because of what we call a hook, right? So in IGTV, the videos that are longer than one minute on Instagram, uh, initially, you can only watch 15 seconds of that. And then it asks you if you want to watch the full video. So whatever's happening on mm -hmm. those 15 seconds is integral because that's what's going to decide whether or not somebody's going to keep watching or just scroll by. And there you saw Adam Neely say something like, first, he started with the following sentence, I'm going to blow your mind or something like that, which is like <laughs> classic. I mean, if, if you're going to blow my mind, okay, I've already granted the 15 seconds. So now I want to see for these 15 seconds if, if my mind is going to be blown. And then he, he, he whips out a piano out of the dark, just like a piano emerges from nothing, which is a bit of magic. Fantastic. I'm so in. This is seven seconds in. I'm already, I have a promise that my mind's going to be blown. A piano emerged as if from thin air. Fantastic. And then he says a question. Let me know if you can hear this. And the video <laughs> pauses. So you have to click to hear it. I'm like, what am I going to hear? It's it could not have been better designed. So that is... 100% dumb just, luck, by the way. Total dumb luck. No, but think about it. Like we're analyzing this right now. Even the way those 15 seconds end, let me know if you can hear this. And right before he plays... No, it's, it's amazing. It's perfect. I could not... I've been talking to Vanessa when we were seeing it uh, uh, blow up and... and I, I had to like go back and remember well, what was the video that I actually posted that is that and and I when I get to that point of like let me hear if you can say I just I found myself I could control it I automatically click to watch it even though I just published it I was exactly. just like oh yeah exactly you, you what, just can't that's it, what happened it overrides to me. your faculties to me it was even worse because I knew I knew that I'm gonna listen to the full episode. So I didn't want to spoil myself. I told myself, don't watch because you're gonna hear it in the episode. And I couldn't not watch. I watched the whole thing after being committed to not watching it. And yet I watched it. <laughs> I want to hear what's your most successful. Like you're, you're generally, like you're an actual successful Instagrammer. We, are, we were just pathetic idiots who got lucky, but you're, you're the, the real thing. So tell me, tell me something that you did consciously to exploit the algorithm, not just dumb luck. Something that, because obviously you do a lot of posts, you, you post daily, you post on schedule, you, you, you've made it your profession. But I want to hear something that played out exactly as you planned it and, and you know, really blew up. So mm -hmm. give us an example. So, um, well, I guess it's going to be a little bit more boring, but I think the posts that I, that I make that do the best are literally jam-packed with value because they're educational. Like I'm going to be teaching some kind of painting technique. I'm going to be showing, okay, today we're going to learn how to paint in grisaille. Today we're going to learn glazing. Today we're going to learn palette knife mixtures. And then the first 15 seconds are going to be like, hey, everyone, today we're going to learn how to paint using a palette knife. The palette knife sketch is extremely important because it has both educational benefits and also artistic merits end of 15 seconds, you're like, oh, I gotta watch this. You know, it's just, it's just a very clear value proposition. I'm telling them, here's something really cool that you're gonna get if you just give me 10 minutes of your time. And hopefully, like, I don't even feel manipulative doing so because I do think that my 10 minutes... Because you then deliver, deliver the promise. I deliver on the right. promise. Like, I teach them how to paint with a palette knife. And I think my success has to do with the fact that people 
have not been taken advantage of Instagram to deliver very meaningful things to people. You know, they, they think, okay, Instagram, whatever, this is where I go to waste my time. And, and mm-hmm. I have kind of tried to say, well, okay, most people are here to waste their time, but I'm going to make their time worthwhile. If you spend time on my page, there's value in there for you. And this is pretty rare. Like not, not a lot of people do it in general. Very, very few artists do it. Uh, the people who do it and, and who gave me the most inspiration are actually chefs. You know, here's a recipe mm-hmm. for making whatever this cake. So you see, da, 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 this is how the cake looks like when it's complete. And then you kind of have to watch the recipe because how do you make the cake? And at the end of this video, <laughs> you literally learn how to make the cake. So I thought they do it for cooking. Why, why won't I do it for painting? So I think, I think mine is, I, I, I almost, I mean, I feel like you give people enough value, then they learn to trust you. And then they understand, okay, here, here is, you know, because mm. recently I've even done something that very, very, very few people do is, is use up the, the whole uh, allotted hour of IGTV. And I've started uploading, I think I uploaded like three of those videos that are almost an hour long. And I think that is something you can't do if you have a small account, because if you're a small account and people don't trust your content yet, you see an hour long video on Instagram and you immediately scroll past it. You don't even think twice about it. You're like an hour crazy. Who puts a, like, a, like a super long video on Instagram that makes no sense for the platform. But after you've kind of proven your track record in being able to deliver a, a load of like a lot of value in, in, in 10 minutes or in 15 minutes, I actually think it it allows you to to go even deeper because there were these videos that I made that are longer that I thought, you know, I just I can't explain it in 10 minutes, no matter how much I tried. And I basically put my audience to the test. I asked myself, will they, will they watch an hour long video? And they kind of are. I wanted to ask you a question about how your art and your art practice has changed because of the pandemic because mm. i think we we we've had some interesting conversations about what you thought music ed, sorry what you thought art education had to be before uh so many people went virtual for everything and what it is now and i'd love to for you to talk a little bit about how that experience has changed your your art potentially my art or my education but well art education first mm. but if it has changed your art i would be really interested mm. to know that uh so first education no stop this is the time, an hour and a half into our conversation, that we actually need to go back and let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, your schooling, your education, and then get to how the pandemic changed you. Okay, <laughs> art background. This starts in Jonathan Hirschfeld's class in uh, 11th grade, Yudalef. I think what happened there is almost like a lucky thing where up until that point, art in art school wasn't really taught, but rather just judged. It was like, make a painting about the blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, all right, I'll do what I can. <laughs> try to make a painting responding to the, okay, I'll try. And then it's all, it's almost like the skill that I brought from home. I, I, I even, you know, it's pathetic to call it skills, but the abilities that I brought with me, my talent uh, had to serve for all, for all the, for all the purposes of, of, of the things that were required of me during my art education. And then, you know, in comes this, this person and says, listen, here's how you paint. Let's learn how to do it. And I was like, what? 
And the nerdy part of me awoke because I'm, a, an, I'm, I'm, I'm enormously nerdy and I love when things can, can, can be turned into systems and into steps. And if you follow one, two, three, you get this results. If you do something different, you get that results. And I started understanding painting on a mechanical level, like the mechanics of how to build a painting. I feel like if Jonathan Hirschfeld would have taught me manga, <laughs> could, could be that I would have been a manga illustrator today. It's just the fact that I lived under this illusion that people are great painters because they're born talented. Mm. And suddenly, like my whole conception completely changed into, oh, this is something that if I learn the right method of making it, I'm going to be able to do it. And that's fantastic. And, and, so, and, and then you also spent some time in New York studying art here. And I think... Uh, that, was, the, that was before. That was a yeah, little bit before. No, I, I went to... When I studied in New York, in, you mean in LaGuardia? So yeah. I spent my 10th grade here uh, studying art, but that, that was no, there was no paradigm shift there. It was all just like, mm. you're in ceramics class, try to make a ceramic thing. And I'm like, I like dragons and I just made, made dragons. But it, this, it's this silly idea in the, in the way that art is taught in most establishments that you just need to give me a source of inspiration then I'm going to respond by making an art piece and then you're going to judge it and give me a grade. I'm like, where in this whole event have I been taught something? Where is the educational value of all of this? Like you told me you should paint something in your home and I'm like, GameCube controller and I paint it. So like, that's not, that's not education. That's you giving me tasks. Um, and mm. I think, uh, I think Hirschfeld was the first one who says, okay, this is how you build a painting. This is the first layer. This is the second layer. And this is how they did it in the Renaissance. In the Baroque, they did it totally different. They followed these steps. And I was blown away by the fact that this can actually be taught like you teach a craft. And, and I was just sold. I remember the difference between studying history in, in Jerusalem and studying history at Columbia University. And at Columbia University, I remember we, we had a bit, I took a few history classes, even though the, the focal was, was different. I remember being surprised at how much emphasis there was on critical theories, which required you to essentially pick a topic of interest and cram it through the critical lens just uh, to me it's the equivalent of telling you you know draw find find an object of of inspiration and and paint it it's just take this topic and tell tell us why critical theory applies to it but critical theory is only one school of thought it's only one method of interpreting history and a fairly recent one meanwhile in jerusalem we followed what i assume some faculties in the u.s would consider an atavistic curriculum, which required us to understand the variety of schools, see the plethora of interpretations, how scholars throughout the past 200 years at least have reached radically different conclusions about the same events you, because they used different tools to assay them. Once you have that perspective, then you can pick your school and start digging into the events you care about. But until you have that basic understanding there's this foundational level of look at how people for, throughout the past 200 years have been studying this subject you have no business picking up a subject and just painting it in your case or writing about this in the case of a historian like it's just you don't you just just stay out of it read a lot first 
learn and understand how how the, those ladders of craft have been developed and then choose if you don't agree with them step out of them and 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 and, and cr- critique them but first understand them you know what you've done here adam you've given the best critique of postmodern art better than what i could have done <laughs> oh well i mean i was i you've was done, just trying to so troll ba- you ba- ba- no basically <laughs> basically what you've done is is exactly that these people are criticizing traditional art they're criticizing classicists they're criticizing realism without having gone through the process of fully understanding them this is true for the vast majority so i think it's 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 i'm totally with you and 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 it's not it's nice to see how uh how it can be looked at through the through, through the lens of education as well and 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 also you can edit out the previous part when i said to vanessa what i said because i can answer that question i just right now now, now we need to get to the point um so to, to all that was a build-up to say okay so this is how ken goshen got his chops in classical art mm. basically for Jonathan Hirschfeld and then Atahana in Tel Aviv, you have Aram uh, Gershoni, uh, Nipo, David Nipo. David Nipo. Those, those are, t- if, you, if, you, if anybody's interested to look up some amazing art, like search Aram Gershoni and uh, David Nipo, they're just phenomenal. And you can tell if you see Ken's art and then look, see him in the light of his direct masters, you'll be, I mean, I think it's a very edifying Uh, 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 exercise so you've done that and then you moved to new york studied at Par- parsons got one-on-one with the with the contemporary art world a little bit and here we are 20 2019 is over 2020 is about to begin how do you deal the pandemic is the pandemic, just landing the, on our shores the pandemic is landing on our shores so up until that point I was teaching in person. You know, I was teaching... Okay, first of all, I teach. So art education is, is immensely important to me. I'm fortunate enough to actually enjoy teaching very much, which is not the case for a lot of art practitioners. Some, some people do art education because they're like financially, they, they have to. Uh, but I actually enjoy it a lot. And I, I, I view the, the, basically the task of... of You know carrying the torch and 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 bringing the knowledge giving the knowledge to the next generation of practitioners to to be a duty you know it's a responsibility if you have gone through the process of learning something that you deem to be absolutely crucial significant and meaningful if you die with that knowledge you've you've sinned against culture <laughs> uh, so that said I was teaching in person I was teaching in my studio and I was teaching at my favorite place in the world which is the Met I would take my students to the Met with our sketchbooks and we would learn from Rembrandt and we would we would sketch uh, Greek sculptures and I loved it and it was very very fun and then boom the pandemic hits can't have students in my studio anymore I can't take anybody to the Met because the Met is closed sadness ensues and and, and for about <laughs> a month or two I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to pay my rent. It was, a, it was a real concern because, uh, you know, the, major, the majority of my income is reliant on teaching. And then I uh, decided to not be stubborn and give a chance to this um, online thing. <laughs> which is not, which <laughs> is not an obvious conclusion for, for somebody sharing your DNA. Right. So Goshens are known for their stubbornness. And so I, if you were to ask me before the pandemic hit, if I would ever consider teaching online, I would tell you like, no, that's not for me. Like I could never do that kind of stuff. 
You can't. No, not only that, you can't, you can't teach you're, you're that right, way. You're right. You're right. You can't. <laughs> I thought it was impossible. But then, you know, you and I both, and I think you and I, the three of us, uh, being, you know, in, intellectually minded people, we can kind of find a way to justify and argue for a position that we just emotionally hold and just stand up for mm-hmm. it. I think... No. <laughs> I feel like I just didn't want to get into it. And therefore, I constructed a whole story for myself about how right. it's impossible. And then that's... You don't say. I do say. And so that story had to collapse, you know, and, and I'm, I'm happy that it did because it provided me with the opportunity to, to create a completely new venture. So now I teach exclusively online and the results speak for themselves. I don't know if I've had the opportunity to show you works by my students, but I am just day by day blown away by the fact that they have learned how to do these things from scratch, having never met me in person. It just continues. And, and you teach them through Zoom. I teach them through Zoom. And and it's it's amazing the extent to which this has strengthened me as a teacher. And I'm going to explain. Because up until that point, I... I did this thing that our teachers do that sounds something like this. No, this mark is in the wrong place. Let me show you. I would grab the brush and mm. I would do it, right? And, and this is a crotch, you know, that allows me to explain stuff very simply, very immediately. Uh, and, and, and then things are, are completely clarified. But through Zoom, I have to get way better at communicating exactly because what I'm you trying ke- you to can't, you, you definitely can't pick up their brush, but you can't even point at the problem of the painting, I can. right? I can. Oh, you can? I screenshot and I mark. I <laughs> screenshot and I, I definitely point. I do more than point. I screenshot their work. I outline exactly the problem and I say, this shape needs to be wider by this amount. I can be so mm. precise in, in the guidance that I give them that it just boggles the mind how amazingly they do. I'm just, you know, every night after I have a lesson and, you know, I see... I see the work that's produced by my students and it's just inspiring to see what's possible. And, and I mean, sometimes even it's sometimes even uh, outclasses what I was able to do at the Met because at the Met, I would be looking at a Rembrandt and say, here, you see here, I have Rembrandts behind me. So here, do you, do, do you see this shadow shape? And they say, no. And I say, uh, no, this, <laughs> this shape right here. And they say, what do you mean shadow shape? I see the eyes and the nose and I say, no, but the shape of the shadow. And it's just, it's very difficult to, to, to explain these things sometimes in person. But then I discover that on zoom, I bring up the reference. I outline the shape and I say, do you see this shape? It's conveniently outlined in red. (laughs) Wow. I do see that shape. It's outlined in red. There's just these fantastic things that you can do uh, working online that I would have never imagined. So I'm, I'm grateful to zoom and I'm also critical. Please allow me to export high quality videos because the quality is suboptimal step up. But yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and sign up for art classes at oh yeah and if you want to study yes 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 that's exactly correct and if you want to study with me please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons so before, uh-huh. before letting you go we we are indebted to some of your uh followers on instagram who asked a few specific questions so we're gonna oh. throw oh, do, okay. do a lightning round 
Brilliant. Um, oh, get, get out of here, lightning round, yeah. as if I can give a quick answer to technical <laughs> painterly questions. Um, Let's try. Well, before the technical painterly question, I um, it, it kind of fits with our conversation right now. Uh, somebody asked whether you recommend art school. Oh. Mm. Uh, okay. I think if what you're interested in is the kind of contemporary art that we may have been less than delicate in 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 talking about the merits of, of of that tradition you definitely definitely need to go to art school absolutely uh conventional art school get a degree get a master's uh because this a, it's a more intellectual pursuit than it is a skill-based pursuit so for that the academy is extremely well tailored and that's the mfa if, type mfa right. type exactly if you're trying to learn how to paint and you're, you're, what you're asking me is, Ken, if I go get a degree in art, will I get better at painting? No. Trying to get better at painting uh, by doing a degree is almost like doing a degree in swimming or a degree in soccer. Journalism. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. You can talk to that. But the thing about journalism and, and how it differs from soccer is that when I hear degree in journalism, it makes sense to me. But I think when all of us hear degree in soccer, we're like, get out of here. Go and play with the soccer ball right. uh, and play against other people who know how to play soccer. So I, I view the, the, more, the more I mature, this word, the more I mature, the more I view art as more akin to sports than anything else or martial arts. You know, when, you're, when you want to study sports, you go, you watch the best soccer players, you try to analyze their moves. At first, you try to copy their moves. It's like, what does Messi do? What does Ronaldo do? And try to incorporate them into your own practice. This is what I do when I do master copies. I try to take from my favorite inspirations and draw their techniques into my own practice. Uh, and just make sure that you have somebody with you whom you trust, you know, like your my my two teachers, Aram and Nipo, were excellent. Uh, but there are today, you know, more ateliers are are kind of sprouting all over the place. If you're in New York, we have uh, the Grand Central Atelier, but right around know, the, the corner from our place, in fact, exactly. Uh, and uh, and they they do great work if 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 the classical tradition appeals to you. But uh, but yeah, I'm 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 I would say be very clear about the goals you have and what you're trying to attain uh, and don't expect that to become clearer in the process of learning, it won't. There is a lot of confused people in art school. Do you think that part of the confusion is because of the marketing of these schools? Do you, schools that actually professionalize in making you maybe an art critic or a professor are also implicitly pretending or trying to convey that they they bestow some artistic skill some technical skill is it that the schools are being obtuse about what a student can expect to gain from a degree or is it that prospective students aren't doing enough research i feel like the deception is more self-deception than anything else uh they believe that they're teaching you how to draw and paint to the degree that it's necessary in today's art world Right when you look at when you look at Tracy Emin uh, and how she draws, she's a drawing faculty somewhere in England, and her drawings are pardon me, Tracy, but horrendous. Right, Let, letting her letting her teach painting, I think, uh, is a bit of a it's 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 like okay, like you can you she there's so much that she can teach, you know, because clearly she's one of the most successful artists out there today. And she can talk a lot about performance and 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 site-specific sculpture and all those other things. But you know, you can't <laughs> letting Tracy Emin 
teach drawing is basically a recognition that drawing is not important in today's art world. So I mm. think I think what they are doing in terms of the skills that they give you is they are in full belief that the skills that they are are you sufficient. Know, so you're saying when you're saying, sufficient. when you're saying self-deception is self-deception of the people who run the schools. Yeah, they think we did teach you how to draw. You did a full semester of drawing with whatever faculty. And I'm like, oh, so that's once a week for three months. And now I know how to draw with a person mm. who's sus- whose credentials are suspicious in that in that field anyway. You know what I mean? It's just way lower on the priority list. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so it really is incumbent on an aspiring artist to be very clear with themselves what it is that they're interested in. I wouldn't interested in is, a, is, is big, right? But, but maybe what it is that you want to learn. What, what, yeah. What kind of artistic what do you pursuit want to learn? They, like if, they're exactly. In. Like, let's say if you want to learn how to talk to art critics and art galleries, <laughs> forget about the atelier. <laughs> like Aram and Nippo never talked to me about any of that. Their advice was, I try to stay away from these events. You know what I mean? So if you're trying to, to become a savvy art world individual, yeah, you know, you're going to be taught more in the academy than in an atelier. But if what's on your mind is, well, how do I make this thing look like I want it to look? Forget about the art world, uh, the art academy. I think the last question that, that I thought found really interesting, and I, we slightly touched on it with Adam Neely as well, is how now you, you showed how you've basically transitioned a lot of your work into a pleasing the algorithms of, of Instagram and be becoming an online teacher. Uh, how are you able to preserve your passion for the actual art that, that, that got you into business in the first place? Or, or even are you right now? It's a little bit difficult to talk about passion because we're so deep in Corona virus that I don't remember what passion for art feels like <laughs> anymore, honestly. Uh, because as you probably know very well, my my biggest passion is, is portraiture and specifically portraiture done from life of people that I know and appreciate. So up until this this virus, I had an ongoing project of, of portrait that I was doing of, of my friends and those were, were cut short. And, and so I've been kind of broken uh, emotionally, you know, about not being able to, to continue the work that I actually want to do. And my response to that has been, well, even if I'm not going to make the work that I'm most passionate about right now, I'm going to make sure that I spend my time building up my skill set so much so that when I get back into it, it would have been, it will have been better than I was able to do it before Corona. Well, Ken Goshen, thank you, Ken or Thanks Ken. Thanks for whatever. joining us, Ken. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was fun. And also thanks for listening to all our episodes. Oh, your, <laughs> your podcast is the best. Oh, do I, need, do I need to tell people where to find me? Um, I, I, I probably not, but, but let's do it. Okay. No, no, but let's oh, do it. But, <laughs> I'm okay. just assuming that people will easily find you, but, but let's do it. So for lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. To support <laughs> me on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash kengoshen. And for all the daily updates, please follow me on Instagram at kengoshen. Nice. There you <laughs> go. There you go. <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. It's a pleasure talking to you. I miss you guys. Yeah. Yeah, my, one day we might meet in person again.
I told them that I missed them and both of them did. <laughs> Let this be on the record. It, it, it was not about the missing. It was about the... I, I, do people even exist outside of the cyberspace? No, the Zoom context is all we, is I, all we need. I mean, we, we were really all are part of the simulation now. We're in a simulation within a simulation. People are just two-dimensional beings. That's, oh, God, don't drag me back in. I need to go. <laughs> <laughs> bye, people. Good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Please follow us on uncertain.substack.com and at uncertainpod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, give us a five-star rating. That would be really, really nice. And tell your friends about us. That'll also be helpful. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And until next time, stay sane.